Hello and welcome to In Unison, the podcast about new choral music and the conductors, composers, and choristers who create it. We are your hosts. I am Zane Fiala, Artistic Director of the International Orange Chorale of San Francisco. And I'm Giacomo Di Gregoli, a tenor in IOCSF, the Golden Gate Men's Chorus, and the San Francisco Symphony Chorus. And this is... In Unison! Hey everybody! Today's episode of In Unison is the second installment in what we hope will be a continuous series of features talking about new albums in the world of choral music. A few episodes ago, we talked about the new album from Tonality called America Will Be. And today, we're going to be discussing the new CD released just a few weeks ago by Coral Chameleon out of New York, entitled Deus Ex Machina. The album features two works, both with chorus and organ. The first is What Are We Becoming by composer Dale Trumbor, and we actually discussed that composition in episode 403 when we interviewed Dale. The second work on the album, which makes up the majority of the CD, is Messiah's False and True, written by Rex Eisenberg. So today we're going to get to know Rex a little better and hear about the piece from his perspective. And this episode is actually a twofer. We managed to wrangle Coral Chameleon's artistic director, the incomparable Vince Peterson, into the Zoom call as well. So we'll get to hear Vince's thoughts on the album and Rex's incredible composition. Just like last time, we're going to play excerpts from the album, but not complete tracks. So if you want to hear this recording in its entirety, please head over to CoralChameleon.com and purchase a copy. We guarantee you won't be disappointed. To get us started, let's listen to some of the opening movement of Messiah's False and True, written by Rex Eisenberg for chorus, organ, bass drum, and narrator. This is Consolamini Consolamini, performed by Coral Chameleon.
right, today on In Unison, we are talking all about a brand new choral album, Deus Ex Machina from Choral Chameleon, which was released just a short time ago on September 20th, 2021. And joining us to dive deep into the album, as well as the compositions it features, are Vince Peterson and Rex Eisenberg. The CD also features an incredible work by composer Dale Trumbor, and if you check out In Unison episode number 403, you can hear Dale talk all about her piece as well. But first, how about a little background info on Vince and Rex? Vince Peterson is a respected choral conductor, composer-arranger, and teacher of music here in the United States, with a 20-year hybrid career that spans the worlds of choral music, theater, sacred music, and music education. In 2008, Vince founded the New York-based vocal ensemble Choral Chameleon, and under his leadership, the group has premiered more than 150 works and won a ton of critical acclaim. In 2015, the ensemble was awarded with the ASCAP Chorus America Award for Adventurous Programming, and in 2017, the group was named the first vocal ensemble artist-in-residence at National Sawdust, an undisputed new music hub in New York. In addition to his work with Choral Chameleon, Vince also serves as artistic director of Empire City Men's Chorus. Vince received his bachelor's in composition from the San Francisco Conservatory of Music and a double master's in both composition and choral conducting from Mann's College of Music. And finally, in 2018, Vince was awarded the Louis Botto Award for Innovative Action and Entrepreneurial Zeal by Chorus America. Vince, welcome back to In Unison. Thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be with you guys. All right. Also chatting with us today is Rex Eisenberg. And Rex is a Philly-born, L.A.-based composer whose works touch upon the nature of human relationships, from the personal to the societal, throughout history and the present day. He is also devoted to expanding the catalog of Jewish liturgical music, with compositions that honor the spirit of the original text while offering renewed meaning for contemporary audiences. Rex's music has been performed throughout the U.S. and abroad by a tremendous number of ensembles, including Jack Quartet, Now Ensemble, St. Olaf Cantore, Cantori New York, and many others. Rex holds a BA in music from Yale University and a master's and doctorate degree in composition from Manhattan School of Music. Like Giacomo, while at Yale, Rex was a member of the Yale Wiffenpoofs, where he composed several arrangements for the group and toured extensively. Rex, we're really looking forward to chatting with you and hearing more about Messiah's False and True, the incredible work you've got on the new Choral Chameleon album. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Zane. I'm thrilled to be here. So glad to have you, Rex. Um, and obviously, Vince, we're we're old pals. You're a deep friend of the pod. Um, we've had the pleasure of having you before. But um, Rex, it is very, very nice to meet you. And usually we start these conversations off um, with a little bit of an icebreaker. So here's a fun one that I wanted to actually pose to the two of you. What was your first impression of each other? I'll toss that to Rex first. What was your first impression of Vince? That's a great question. Um, well, Vince and I have known each other forever, and I have to say that I had kind of two first impressions of Vince. Um, one at EMA, which is the uh, European American Musical Alliance in Paris um, in 2008, where we were both attending for the um, for a summer composition uh, workshop. And um, one was when I reconnected with Vince at a concert 
with the Cecilia Chorus and Coral Chameleon in 2016. Um, the first time I met Vince in 2008, I was kind of uh, an idiot college student who was kind of snobby and serious. And I thought, who is this wild child from San Francisco doing all this crazy rep? And um, but I remember his musicianship being um, being second to none. Time passed and I obviously or hopefully evolved and uh, matured and I continued to follow what he was doing um, with Choral Chameleon, and I thought it was just one of the most uh, impressive and interesting choral ensembles in New York. Um, so when we reconnected in 2016 at um, the performance of Messiah's False and True with uh, Cecilia Chorus of New York, um, and he asked me to be his next composer in residence, I was completely floored um, and incredibly humbled. Um, I'm sure you you both know this already, but Vince is a, a, an incredibly warm and incredibly wise individual. He he has a very kind of pastorly quality. Um, but uh, so that those are those are my those were my first impressions of Vince at our at our first meeting and at our second. <laughs> a lot. I, I, I share a lot of those sentiments. He definitely is a, a, an avuncular figure. Right? <laughs> yes, I have sure. to admit, Vince looked a little bit worried when we first asked that question. Like we were I about to was, reveal something. Oh, I think he was thinking about his first impression of Rex. Actually, probably. Which uh, oh maybe Vince, you'll you'll delight us and let us know. What did you think when you first met Rex? You know, young, brash college student. Uh. My initial impression of Rex was a uh, young, brash college student. <laughs> no, no, uh, no, I, I, um, I thought, who is that handsome Jewish boy um, who is, uh, you know, subjecting himself to this uh, intensive month of study in Paris? He's got to be cool, first of all, because he's here, right? And, you know, going to Ima you know, was so cool, the, the romantic idea of being in Paris. So I couldn't help but notice how absolutely gorgeous he was because I was in a romantic mood. I was in Paris. But <clears throat> Rex um, being ever wonderfully self-deprecating as he is, um, you know, he, uh, we were both different people um, at that time. Um, but I remember, you know, I remember my first impressions of people very well. And I think about people who move my insights um, when I meet them. And Rex certainly uh, was on that list, even though there was a bit of a distance between us in 2008. Um, and then Rex describes it exactly right. Um, we reconnected eight years later in 2016 when Coral Chameleon was making a guest appearance on a concert of Cecilia Course of New York under my teacher, uh, Dr. Mark Shapiro, uh, who was conducting uh, Rex's piece, uh, Messiah's False and True, which had been commissioned prior to that by Mark's choir, Cantori New York, um, which I previously sang in, which Rex previously sang in. Um, both of us have deep relationship with Mark. Um, and so I, I had heard a lot about this piece, uh, and I wanted to go see it. And I invited uh, several of the board members uh, and uh, other singers to join us um, to listen to it. Um, and as you can tell, because we now have recorded it on an album, uh, the piece did not disappoint. Uh, and I was so pleased to um, to reconnect with Rex, and and you know. What do we say? We all 
you know, we change with time, we have life experiences. And um, I mean, it was at the at once it was like, time had all that time had not even passed at all. We knew each other just as we did with the immediacy of Ema in 2008. But there was immediately a sense a palpable sense of um, newness, a new chapter, you know, and I, I knew instantly that I wanted to work with him um, in the most intimate way that I can work with a composer, which is as a resident. So let's talk about that a little bit. Um, let, let's talk about the beginning of the process of this album and kind of dive in a little bit. Vince, tell us maybe a, a little bit about the genesis of the concert series for Deus Ex Machina. Like, how did you get to the point where you were thinking about this notion of God in the machine? It's interesting. Um, you know, it was almost like we had some kind of musical telepathy um, because this was all conceived pre-pandemic, uh, far pre-pandemic. But, you know, Donald Trump had been elected president of the United States and things were not looking good. Um, we could all, I think, see the writing on the wall. And I've always wanted the programming of Coral Chameleon to really speak to the human condition. Uh, I've wanted people to leave our concerts with a sense of hope, but also a sense of personal, moral, and ethical responsibility. What can I do to change the world? Um, and, you know, I wanted to do a giant concert that said, it's okay. Like, we hear you. We know how you feel. Um, if there's one thing we all can agree relieves people of their defenses so quickly, it's choral music. Um, and, uh, you know, when, when we talked about the residency um, with, you know, Rex, uh, you know, having the residency with us, actually, Messiah's uh, was not really part of the residency. It was something that was, you know, a kind of a bonus thing, which is interesting because, I mean, I knew that I wanted to perform it with Coral Chameleon, you know, and um, I, I knew that I wanted to work with Rex. Um, so insofar as he would allow me to into that space on that piece, um, and um, we'll talk more about that, I guess. But, but you know, I don't know. I mean, both what, what Rex wrote in Messiah's False and True and what Dale wrote um, in What Are We Becoming, they just seem to be quintessentially the right thing to say um, at that time. And now I frankly think that this current time, the month of September, starting off this year, coming out of being shell-shocked of the pandemic, this is the right time to release it um, to the world as well. So, um, so yeah, there you have it. The timing is spectacular, and um, as you mentioned, there have been several performances of this piece. Um, but Rex, you've you've done a few revisions as well. You, in fact, you did one specifically for Coral Chameleon, where the two of you um, worked together. What else did you want to say? What was the revision uh, for you about in 2019, and what did you discover through the process working with Vince? That's a great question. I think. It's a little misleading because the score says that it was composed in 2014 and then revised in 2019, but actually I did two revisions. The first time was after the piece was performed by Cantori and uh, who commissioned the work. And that was um, a smaller ensemble who um, was accustomed to doing um, very kind of thorny, intricate work. 
And Mark Shapiro, the conductor, wanted to bring it to Cecilia Chorus, which was a much bigger group. And that gave me the opportunity to adjust a lot of the musical ideas to suit a larger ensemble. But it actually also proved to be just a generally great opportunity since I came to realize that there's really um, a, a market for kind of big earwormy concert length works that can be performed by community choirs, professional choirs alike. Um, big choruses that I felt were really starving for large works that, that don't need um, an orchestra, that have a contemporary sensibility and are satisfying to sing. And there, there actually aren't a lot of oratorios out there, especially contemporary or, oratorios. Um, so I wanted to give choirs who perhaps sang Handel's Messiah during their Christmas concert or every other year, a, a contemporary companion for that, for that piece. Um, so, you know, it's a very kind of singer satisfying, crowd pleasing, cost effective piece. And I think that's part of the reason that it's been performed by, by four different groups now. Um, the second edit was less about musical changes. Um, there were some, but the biggest change was really with the text. And that's the, the more recent edit in 2019. Um, as the piece started gaining more traction and getting more attention from world directors, I didn't know personally, I realized that, um, I wouldn't have the luxury of spending time with every chorus and explaining the subtleties of the piece. I also felt like the arc of the story wasn't coming through as clearly as I would have liked um, and that some of the texts were a little too oblique. So I, I wanted to find kind of more direct examples. Um, I also think just wanted to make some of the references more explicit. I think um, when I initially wrote the piece in 2014 and at its premiere, we obviously didn't know that Trump was going to become president. Um, in November 2016, as Vince has already alluded to, you know, the idea of false messiah became super relevant, um, even more than I had initially conceived of when I wrote the piece. So when audiences started to hear the piece performed during the Trump administration, it felt like the piece was referencing Trump, and I decided that reference needed to, to be made more explicit. Let's take a moment and listen to some more of Rex's piece. This is Movement 3, Populus Qui Ambulabat, featuring organist Nathan Taylor, narrator Paul Hecht, and percussionist Christine Chen. As he pauses for the night in a village or in the open countryside, great throngs come to him as to a holy shrine. He would seem to be what the people regard him, the perfect and universal man, simple and undefiled. His endeavor is to wipe out the barriers which divide the people from one another and make them one great united brotherhood. His idealism transcends the boundaries of race and country and seeks to make itself one with the highest hopes of humanity.
We've been talking sort of about the piece a little bit, but we haven't told our audience yet a bit about it. And I'd actually like to take a moment to read the description that you you offer folks uh, from from the liner notes from the album. And folks, if you're listening, go and listen to this album right after right after this episode. It's really pretty spectacular. But here's what what Rex has to say about Messiah's False and True. Messianic leaders are a perennial motif in human history. During periods of crisis or cultural upheaval, societies gravitate to individuals promising salvation and elevate them to power. Some of these leaders become our greatest heroes, others our most hateful villains. Nevertheless, we find ourselves looking to them for answers again and again. Messiah's False and True, which is written for choir, organ, bass drum, and a narrator, explores this phenomenon through a tour of messianic figures, heroic and horrific, throughout history. The narrative of the piece follows society's common response to such figures, anticipation, jubilation, disappointment, condemnation, grief, and in fact, I believe the movement's actually, it's written in two parts where one is the rise and one is the fall. The spoken narration consists of a collage of texts from various messianic leaders and their admirers and critics. Their words are paired with biblical passages used in Handel's Messiah, as you mentioned, the choirs who are looking to perform Handel's Messiah, sung in Latin by the choir, which follows the events of the story and respond to the narration. After this journey, the final words of the piece asks us to consider relying a bit less on our would-be saviors and a bit more on ourselves. So I, clearly some heady topics in there. Um, as Zane mentioned, we spoke with Dale Trimble a few weeks back about the blurring between the sacred and the secular. And obviously Messiah's false and true plays with many of the same themes. This is a huge, I mean, you, you're, you're tackling some pretty big ideas and some pretty big themes here. What was it that drew you to this notion of blurring the sacred and the secular? That's, a, that's an interesting question. I actually think the relationship between the sacred and secular is quite fluid. Um, in my mind, anything that brings humanity to a kind of higher place of understanding and closer to truth is sacred. So for me, um, things like scientific development is sacred and the scientific method is a devotional exercise. Um, the words of our mentors, our teachers, our parents that elevate us to a kind of higher plane of existence are sacred. Um, there are also portions of the sacred canon that feel like secular ideas that were just given a, a sacred framework to give them legitimacy that we now recognize as kind of outmoded and not as sacred as we thought they once were. Um, I was also raised as a, as a fairly secular Jew and uh, who has become more interested in Judaism later in life. And um, I like to engage with with Jewish texts from a very kind of humanistic and moralistic lens. It's a way of looking at the world and a set of values through which to understand what's happening. It sounds like for you then this was not really like a, a slow evolution or realization. I mean, there was there was something you maybe always sort of felt in the back of your mind. I mean, obviously Judaism sort of lets us think about the coming of the Messiah and how important that is. But, you know, as we spoke about with Dale, sometimes the question is the answer, right? It's the maybe that sense of like what the hope is or what the longing is that might be more interesting. Um, was there some flash moment or an event that inspired this shift in thinking? Like, tell us a little bit about that. I think I've always been skeptical of charismatic leaders. I think I, I'm, I'm never surprised when they stumble, though I'm delighted when they succeed in creating change. But I, I tend to believe that change, positive change happens more often on an interpersonal level. Um, I'll take gay rights or gay marriage as an example, right? Um, this is not to in any way diminish the wonderful work of our great civil gay, gay civil rights leaders, but um, gay marriage would never have passed if individual gay men didn't start coming out, being open and proud and um, 
showing the people around them in their immediate circles, their families, their friends, that they were worthy of love and respect and dignity. So it was those individual relationships and those individual changes that um, that ultimately changed our society as a whole. And it wasn't some lightning bolt from a leader who swooped in, who swooped in and, and changed things for us. You know, Vince, I wanted to circle back uh, to you and and ask you what the impact this piece had on the singers in Choral Chameleon. Like, what was it like to rehearse the piece and start to get into what the impact was, what the texts meant to them? Like, because I know from personal experience that so many of the pieces of repertoire that we sing with our cor- we work with our choruses impacts the singers on such a deep level. And this is a pretty heady piece. So I'm, I'm wondering what the impact was for for you guys. I don't think there's ever been a time that we've sung this piece, either in rehearsal or performance, where at least one or often more of the singers or myself burst into tears at at some point, did not burst into tears at some point. Um, I don't cry on the podium a lot. I I don't, I mean, I'm, it's funny because people who describe me would say that I'm fairly emotional person, uh, extroverted emotional person. But um, I tell you, when we performed this at the James Chapel at um, Union Theological Seminary up here in Manhattan, I don't know what happened. I, I, was, I was a mess. I was a mess uh, on the podium. Unfortunately, um, you know, Rex was not able to be there for that particular performance, but we were on, you know, we were on the phone with each other, texting back and forth. I mean, we, we, you know, we were in communication about it. Um, I think that, you know, sometimes the, the, the stars align and the constellation just hits all the right points. Um, and this is a piece where it did that. Um, it feels fluid and organic and intuitive for the singers to sing. It's very straightforward in terms of my role as a conductor and what I need to get them to do. Um, it's notated very clearly. Uh, and so those conventional things don't get in the way of experiencing what the piece is saying with immediacy. And ultimately what that does is it elicits a better performance um, from the singers as individuals. And it's ironic that Rex is talking about, you know, individuals and, you know, one-to-one lateral relationships are where real change happens. The, the genuine performance of this piece happens with the individual singers and their relationship um, to the score and to the subject matter. And I just help it along, you know, um, a little bit. And I would also just add one thing, you know, everything that Rex just said about individualism, rugged individualism, this sort of neo Waldo, you know, kind of uh, uh, Emerson mindset, you know, the idea of the whole romantic period in classical music. Um, but of course, refreshed and renewed for a new century, a new time is what has made him the ideal person to be a resident composer for Coral Chameleon because, you know, our singers are very sensitive. They feel it when the composer is disconnected from them. Uh, And there was never a moment in any time that we ever sang anything by Rex that the singers even gave any hint 
of not getting it, not being connected, or not resonating, or not invested. Um, you know, and we sing a lot of crazy stuff. So sometimes it takes a long time to get into a piece far enough to understand what's happening, and then the performance changes. This is immediate. I have a, a broader question about this as well. As a conductor, as a leader of this group of individuals, of singers, what do you do to help facilitate their connection to the deeper meaning of texts? And not necessarily just with this piece specifically, but overall, do you have certain practices that you put into place during rehearsals or like, what do you do to help you get your singers to connect or do they just do it automatically? I know that, um, you know, in a in a sort of conventional choral methodology it's frowned upon for the conductor to talk a lot from the podium um during rehearsal um but i think you know it's worth doing if it's helpful um you know my job is to be helpful and sometimes more talking is helpful um there certainly were many readings by different members of the choir and myself of the text out loud, um, hearing it come out of different people's mouths, you know, with different influx. Um, I generally tend to um, openly and verbally draw direct connections for them between the compositional technique, the melodic material, the harmonic material, and the text. So, for example, you know, in this particular moment, you can tell that the melodic line and the tonal material is less tonal. Um, it's less, uh, you know, chordy, less diatonic, right? And the text might be talking about something having to do with, you know, evil or discord or uncertainty, unrest, fighting, uh, angst, you know? And, um, you know, and I think that that's, you know, that's, uh, something that needs to be emphasized and, and pointed out to the singers and having that discussion changes the sound of the choir you know immediately after when you sing it it's like a different piece it sounds like a different piece after having that so it's worth doing i'd like to talk actually specifically about some of those texts that um that rex chose to set um as we discussed, it's sort of the, 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 the overall narrative arc goes from this sort of hopeful, um, you know, cheering of the Messiah to this sort of moment of realization, the rise and fall, if you will, and sort of in two halves as you've written it. And some of the texts are pretty, pretty heady. Um, uh, in your piece, you pull quotes actually from all manners of speakers for, for the narrator, right? So like uh, uh, things from Barack Obama to Henry Lee to Ronald Reagan, there's a quote about FDR in there. Um, and you really don't spare any punches, the punches though some folks might still hold on to hope about specific messiahs for many years. Like there's some things that are critical about Barack Obama, which is pretty fantastic. Since the 2019 revision, what else might have inspired these thoughts for you about this notion of Messiah worship? And I'm, I'm thinking of figures like Anthony Fauci, who, my God, the man's been run through the ringer. You know, he was the hero for a while, and then it was, you know, oh, the vaccines don't work, and science, and da, da, da. How might the piece evolve from 2019 to today? That's a great question. I, I think um, political, one of the reasons that I included political and religious figures in the work um, is because they're just the easiest to understand and probably the most recognizable to posterity. But um, I think about some of the 
the Silicon Valley tycoons like Mark Zuckerberg or Elizabeth Holmes, who were propped up by venture capitalists and angel investors and tech devotees um, as these kind of saviors and ended up disappointing on a kind of colossal scale. Um, there are also people like you know, mark, mark, uh, multi-level marketing founders, like the, the founders of LuLaRoe, for which Netflix just recently released a documentary who crafted these kind of cult-like followings um, through charisma and the promise of a better life, but who ultimately ended up kind of destroying the lives of, of many in the process. Um, but I want to note that um, I want to be clear that I, I I don't think that all messianic figures are destructive. The piece is called Messiah's False and True for a reason. Many of the figures referenced did actually change the world for the better, indisputably. Some of them were and are monsters. Um, Obama was a, a positive recent messianic figure, not without his own flaws as well, but someone who people put tremendous faith in to do great things and who tried as hard as possible, as humanly possible to achieve them. Um, but I think I, I deliberately wanted the collage. I wanted there to be some figures who felt more ambiguous and some figures where the audience comes away thinking, I, I actually don't know where this person weighs in the balance. And I want them to see I can see how, I want the, I want them to come away thinking I can see how this is a pattern and that that pattern may be a dangerous one if we allow the wrong person to take the reins. A, a question for both you and Vince actually and I realize this is like asking you uh, your favorite child but is there a particular moment in the piece and obviously this this probably changes uh, over the course of time or the the performances or whatnot but are there specific moments in the piece that really ring for you that just that just grab you by the heart and really just sort of shake you a bit I'm curious to see what Vince what Vince <laughs> says about that um so for me when I and yes that is a difficult question <laughs> uh for me, when I look for things that mean something to me personally um, in a piece, I'm always looking for the places where I can feel the, the personal presence of the composer um, in the score. So when, I, when do I feel Rex with me as my friend? So where are the places in the score where um, you know, I almost feel him put his arm around me and kiss me on the cheek and tell me everything's going to be okay. Or say one of his little, you know, Rex-isms that, you know, that are, I don't know, little inside jokes between us or, or what have you, for lack of a better expression. Um, so I can tell you a, a couple of the spots, um, in movement seven um, of this piece, Omnis nos quasieravimus, um, I, I guess in the most personal way, as, as somebody who's known Rex for a long time, as his friend, um, as his companion in music, but also as a Christian, uh, being embraced by his very close Jewish friend. Um, I feel like um, Rex is taking me by the hand and showing me the fabric of his heritage. Um, there is a deep, earthy, um, familial 
uh, reassurance happening there that's extremely overwhelming um, to experience. Let's listen to some of that movement now. Here is movement seven, Omnes nos quasi oves eravimus. We're not, as some would have us believe, doomed to an inevitable decline. Let us begin an era of renewal. Let us renew our determination, our courage, and our strength. And let us renew our faith and our hope. We have every right to dream heroic dreams. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. That's one of the moments. Um, Let us for me, um, I would say the at the recap uh, at the end, where we get to sing the Consolamini uh, theme again. Uh, so the, the piece opens with this movement Consolamini, uh, and Rex, you know, Rex is a master, as far as I'm concerned, of creating a dramatic arc, um, you know, in a piece. Like, he knows text very well. He knows how to arrange texts into a narrative that's cohesive um, and, and easy to do. It's one of my favorite things about all his music, really. Um, but um, but in, in the uh, movement nine, the Nos Altem Speravamus, we start again with this homophonic quiet chorale, uh, which makes me think of Bernstein. It makes me feel of, think of old New York. It makes me remember that Rex, despite his def defecting to Los Angeles, um, is <laughs> East an East Coaster. Um, yes, uh, the traitor. 
Um, I mean, singing the word Yisrael right there at the end of that chorale, and then hearing that consolamini be echoed very quietly in the organ, followed by a roll of the drum and this huge bang, consolamini. I mean, it is a moment when East and West meet and dance when Jewish and Gentile are the same um, person. And when, you know, thousands of years of history um, converge, you know, to give us a glimpse of God, um, really, whatever that is, you know, for us. And, and I, it, I will say this, I will say this. I've, as you know, I've said it many times, I've conducted a lot of music, a lot of new music. That moment um, for me is definitely in the top 10 musical moments that I have ever conducted. Wow, that's pretty spectacular. Rex, how about for you? I mean, what what parts of this movie, or maybe actually... Kind so of there, stuff, Rex. There. Oh my God, <laughs> that. follow that. Follow that. I, believe, I believe he said he liked the part where you put your arm around him and give him a kiss on the cheek <laughs> the most. Please, Giacomo Zane, please bring me down to earth. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's actually funny because those are the two moments that um, I was actually going to point to myself. Um, you know, I think... Um, the well, conversely, like problem children for you, yeah. Problem children. Um, mm. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll start with the movements that I like, and then I'll talk Please. about the problem children. Please. Um, <laughs> the 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 problem. Well, I, I take that back. I'll talk about the problem children first. Um, <laughs> the hardest thing was um, was actually the fall. Um, I actually think it's very easy to convey the idea of a kind of um, rising m- messiah. Conveying the fall was actually quite difficult, just in terms of one sourcing texts that were critical from the perspective of the of the populace. I think that was what I really wanted to convey throughout the whole piece. I wanted the text to feel like, yes, there were some spoken by the actual leaders themselves, but I wanted there to I wanted the populace voice to be present, and um, it was challenging to find texts that were. Um, that were that were critical, um, but in a in a universal way. I, I know that sounds kind of strange. Um, so I, in the in the revision of the piece, found this um, b- bizarre um, little manual. I don't even know what to describe it as, um, and that's this c- kind of. Um, refutation of a condemnation of Andrew Jackson. And it's this really weird kind of text where um, Henry Lee goes on and on about how no one has been more defamed than this man. No one is is worthy of the kind of skepticism and, and criticism for which he was warranted. And it rang so true with, you know, the way Lindsey Graham was talking about Trump or the way that, you yes. know, people were talking about Brett Kavanaugh when he I was, was going to say, Henry, Henry Lee was talking about Andrew Jackson, who was among the worst presidents. Exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> My God. <laughs> Absolutely. And, 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 um, and, and bringing that in, um, I thought, really rang very true with the present day. And it showed that this really is a kind of cyclical behavior that we need to um, somehow break ourselves out of. Um, so that was, that was, but it was a very, that was a very difficult movement to find the right 
text for. And I was overjoyed when I found that text because it, it I think it conveyed exactly what the sentiment that we were all feeling is like, what, who, why would you say this about someone who's so abhorrent, who's so awful? Um, the, I will say that the movement, I agree with Vince that the movements that I feel, um, are intended to be a kind of most touching and most gripping is that seventh movement that, um, I think to some way, in some sense is trying to remove some of the blame off of the people who have put their faith in this leader, maybe in a misguided way. Um, and it's it's saying, I understand why you would want this. I understand why um, you would you would reach out. I know that you want help, and that the only way that you feel that help can be achieved is through some god godhead to come in and 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 save you and swoop in and save you. And that's not your fault. That is a natural human inclination. Um, and so I wanted to create that kind of pastoral moment, that moment of relief where it's at the moment of the piece where people start to think, oh God, like, what, what am I doing? Is this, is this our fault? And it's saying, no, it's not your fault. This is a natural human impulse, but just be aware that this is something that you're feeling. Um, and that moment of sorrow, I think, at the, at the ninth movement that, that Vince talks about is also, I think, really profound. I think there is a moment of recognition and um, I hope um, that the moment comes um, quicker than than it has in the past, but this moment of recognition that like, oh, maybe we really did screw up and that we um, we elevated someone who was horrible or who wasn't going to do the job that we needed them to do. And um, we put too much hope in these people and, and maybe we need to... Um, maybe we really need to reconsider and put more faith in ourselves. I actually think, I'm actually very optimistic about this, to be honest, um, given the election of Joe Biden. I think he was the first president in recent times to really be um, elected by a very rational public who, some of whom said, you know, we're putting our individual political feelings aside. Do we want somebody more progressive? Yes, we probably do. Do we want somebody a little different, a little younger, more diverse? Yes, we probably do. But we need somebody who is going to um, bring bring some normalcy. On the other hand, I'm also a bit pessimistic because 70 million people also voted for our former false messiah in chief. So where are we? I'm not sure, but hopefully on a positive trajectory. How about we take a second and hear a bit of one of Vince and Rex's favorite movements of the piece. This is movement nine, Nos Altem Sperabamus, depicting, perhaps as Rex suggests, a moment of sorrow, or a moment of recognition that mistakes may have been made, but hopefully we're still on a trajectory that is a positive one.
Let us be vigilant, but not afraid. I, I had a thought. What if we listen to one of the movements while we're all on the call together? Uh, that way Vince and Rex can offer a commentary while it's playing. I love that idea. And I thought maybe we could play movement two, Vox Clementis, because it is a pretty epic movement and it would be great to hear your thoughts in real time. I will say one thing preemptively. You asked about our, you know, um, our challenging children um, in this piece. One thing that is deceptively challenging about the piece, though not so challenging that it's frustrating, it's just something you have to really pay attention to, is the synchronization of the bass drum um, and the lower register of the organ. Um, and that that rings true throughout. I mean, it, it looks it actually looks simple because it's you're like, okay, I'm getting a percussionist, just one bass drum. And, and you know, some people might make the mistake of saying, oh, you know, we do this at a college and I'm going to make one of my conducting students stand in the back and, and play the bass drum. This is something that is a job for a real trained percussionist. Um, and, and, you know, Rex's use of the bass drum as an instrument is extensive and idiomatic, um, but it really requires a lot of focus on the part of the organist um, and the conductor and by turn the choir and, and, and the percussionist. Um, and this movement, Vox Clementis, um, is a great example of it because the drum is heavily used um, in this. And, and I don't know, Rex, I'm sure you remember, we did many takes. Um, <laughs> this is a hard movement uh, to put together. Yeah. Um, but I think an important one, I mean, the what's, what's important about this movement is that in the first movement, actually, the bass drum does not appear at all. In the original version of the piece, it did, actually. There was this kind of... Um, very quiet processional and the drum actually um, was supposed to resonate with um, the lowest pipes in the organ. So the way that the piece was originally construed, it was kind of like a gathering storm from, um, from afar. You heard these kind of low pedal tones in the organ and, um, and the bass drum and eventually in and, and the revision of the piece, I dispensed with that. Um, but the, the second movement is really the first time in the new version of the piece that you actually hear the drum. And I want it to be as absolutely terrifying and apocalyptic as possible um, because the tone between first the first movement and the second movement is so different. Um, you know, the tone of the first movement is so embracing and conciliatory and, you know, comforting and paired appropriately with Obama. And the second movement is paired with, is, is bombastic and monstrous and paired with Donald Trump. Um, and I want those two dipoles to be felt. Um, let me say also the one thing that is really brilliant about this is that we are used to hearing this text biblically, you know, this, a voice cries out in the wilderness. We're used to hearing that with joyful anticipation and happiness. Handles, every valley shall be exalted and the mountains and hills shall be made low. It's this wonderful tenor aria that heralds the, the imminent arrival of you know, the, the Christ who is going to come down in his golden chariot um, from, <laughs> from the sky. And in this piece, the point is driven home uh, about the, the problematic nature of that mindset by the fact that the text is reframed as an uh-oh. 
you know, a voice cries out in the wilderness, everybody cover your heads, look out. Shrieks from the wilderness. Shrieks from the wilderness. And and it's marked in the score, a sudden wind. Um, and, you know, nowadays, especially those of us who live in hurricane, um, you know, areas of this country, a sudden wind is not a welcome thing. <laughs> no, wildfires as well. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right. Shall we, uh, shall we listen to Movement 2 then? Sure. I think it sounds like a great idea. All right. Uh, this should be it. for empty talk is over. Now arrives the hour of action. This carnage stops right here and right now. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. The forgotten men and women of our country will be forgotten no longer. You will never be ignored again. supposed to talk during that um but i did have things i wanted to share i mean we got all wrapped up i mean i, I just didn't want to stop i kept it. i kept thinking about like it, it's, it's an inversion of the percussion from like mass observation Terrico regan right where like the percussion is sort of the voice of the machine observing and this is like the voice of the people threatening and then rising up it's spectacular i mean the use of the drum there the percussion is pretty spectacular thank you um i yeah i think you know one of the things that i want to I, I would have or should have pointed out while we were playing it was that um, it, it, there's a couple references. There's a couple important musical ideas. The first is this idea of a schism and of splitting. Um, you know that um, knowing that this this type of kind of 
nefarious messianic-like figure can be a divisive force. You hear the chorus start on a unison and sing together and then split. And the chord eventually continues to split and split and split until it's in, until basically each voice part is singing, I think, two or three notes. And it's this kind of nasty chord. Um, and it's the true kind of um, musical depiction of discord and, and, and division. Um, that was a very kind of intentional choice. Uh, the piece also makes reference to one of my favorite pieces of choral music, which is um, Luigi Nono's Il Canto Suspeso, which is not very performed, but is, I think, a masterpiece. And one of the um, one of the movements um, is a uh, the it's it's it the, the let it's I think the setting, if I if I'm not mistaken, and please, um, if I am mistaken, I will re-record this. But um, it's about um, these these letters. Luigi Nono sets these letters that were the last letters that people wrote before they were captured by the Nazis. And um, this one movement, um, it's the the it says the doors open. Um, here, here come our assassins dressed in black. How beautiful it is that um, uh, that life is, or how, how, how beautiful it is that life is so short, or how sad it is that life is so short. I forget the exact text, but it's absolutely chilling. Um, and this piece very, very um, explicitly references that music um, and that kind of, that feeling of just uh, a door swinging open and being all of a sudden just captured and rounded up and um, and and horrified um, and having that feeling. Um, so that's those are those were two of the kind of musical ideas that I I was trying to convey with this. And then obviously you hear the very sinister words of um, of Trump, which come from his inaugural his inaugural address, um, spoken by our wonderful narrator Paul Hecht, um, and that really can shout out to Paul Hecht. Oh. Yeah. What a what a what a talent and a hero um, for for doing this piece. Um, but just really hearing the that that kind of frightening, sinister quality um, after the after that schism, I think um, I hope is as horrific as I tried to write it to sound. Also, shout out to um, Dr. Christine Chen, our percussionist, who um, and Nathan Taylor, our organist. But I mean, really. You know, it, it, it makes a difference, as, you know, especially with non-pitched percussion instruments, that the person knows what's happening. They know, they get it. They know what's, you know, the, 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 and also the, the, um, uh, the velocity um, with which she strikes the drum, um, you know, and the size of drum that's used and everything. I mean, the, there's what Rex says about the door flinging open. You know that that effect in the score. I mean, it it obviously is something that needs to be accentuated, brought out, supported in the in the musical forces. It's something as simple as using the wrong size bass drum, you know, or whatever could mess with that, right? Um, and uh, so, props to these wonderful musicians who really gave it some thought, you know, and really really looked at it and figured out what they needed to bring to the table um, to do that. I wanted to ask specifically about the choice to use a narrator. You know, this is something I've been conducting choral music for a long time, and I have to admit I've never had a narrator in any piece of music that I've ever worked with. Have Is this something you've, an, a device you've employed before, and uh, 
you know, I, I just want to understand a little bit more about the, the choice to do that. It's the first time I've, I, it, that piece was the first time I had used it, but it was not the last. I'm actually very interested in the idea of narrative generally in the choral world and generally as just kind of an aesthetic idea. I think, you know, if, if we want to say that each century of music or choral music had an idea, you know, the 18th century was maybe about form and the 19th century was maybe about um, emotion and the 20th century was about sound. I think of the 20th century as the 21st century as being about narrative. Um, you know, we are in an era right now where we are consuming so much narrative content. We're consuming, people are, you know, binging themselves on Netflix, binging Netflix. They are, um, you know, watching TikToks, which are actually, you know, somewhat kind of short form narratives. And I'm very interested in the idea of, of narrative in, in choral work. I think it also gives people something to listen for and not just listen to, that it creates, um, it creates a new kind of engagement and, um, and directness with a work that I think people are more accustomed to. Um, but Vince in his, um, his generosity allowed me to explore this technique a few more times in some of the works that I wrote for during my residence. So, um, Feathers in the Wind was one of them, which is a kind of parable of, of gossip uh, from, the, from the Jewish perspective. It um, sets a, um, a, a, a fable um, around a, a gossiper and the, the gossiped about, basically, and the um, deleterious effects that that has on all players involved, the, the, the gossiper um, and the gossipy and the community and the community at large, um, the target, the victim and the community, maybe that's, excuse me, the target, the perpetrator and the community, that's probably the best. Um, and the, that is an idea in Jewish, um, in Jewish thought that um, the evil tongue, as we say, Lashon Hora, is, has three victims, um, which is the target, the perpetrator themselves, and, and society at large. And um, because this is a fairy tale, and to, to some extent, and a parable, I felt like using the spoken word was appropriate. And I also felt that it allowed the choir to engage with the work in a very different way. So unlike in um, Messiah's, um, in Feathers in the Wind, um, the choir are actually the narrators. So you have individuals from the community who are essentially telling a part of the story because they're all involved in the story. Even though gossip starts off with just one person telling another person a rumor, it spreads. Um, and that's kind of the, the metaphor of the feathers in the wind. It's the unleashing of a, of a, of a pillow and letting the feathers fly out and knowing that it's impossible to, to retract them and, and pull them back. That when you know when when gossip takes hold it can it can consume a whole community and a whole society um so it also allowed the choristers to have more of an individual voice in in the work um and to and to give give some of their acting skills i mean i i i wanted i was i've always been very interested in drama i wanted to be a musical theater composer i still have aspirations to write musical theater um but choral music is where i found myself and um it's been uh it's been a way for me to to actually use that medium in a, in a more narrative way uh, this has been a fascinating conversation, and I'm I'm so grateful we got the opportunity and the to, to uh, and, and access to both of you to be able to talk about this piece at, at this at this level of depth. 
um, which just makes me more excited for the future. And so for both of you, a question I've got, um, any new collaborations you two might be working on? Uh, maybe Rex, anything you're actively working on that you're excited about, new commissions? Talk about um, a piece that um, is about to be performed um, in, in, or is, is going to be performed in 2022. It was the last commission I worked on before the pandemic. I handed in the score on March 10th, and obviously uh, things <laughs> changed. Timing. <laughs> Terrific timing. Um, but in fact, the piece actually turned out to be much more timely than I thought. Um, it's a piece that was commissioned by the Young New Yorkers Chorus called Love Texts. And um, the, I, the, the conceit behind the piece was, um, what does it mean to fall in love in Manhattan? Which is one of those topics that is so kind of broad and um, it's hard it's hard to write a piece around that around that idea so i thought about you know this is a this is a young group 20 and 30 somethings nobody is falling in love through those kind of meet cutes that we see depicted in film and television it's all dating apps and text messaging and um online interaction and so i asked members of the chorus to um, supply texts um, to, to give me what is the most um, romantic thing anyone ever communicated to you in a text message or in a in a like the most romantic text message you ever received or the most romantic message you ever received on Tinder or Bumble or Hinge or whatever. And I compiled that into into a narrative um, in three movements. The first movement is kind of the about the butterflies that you get when you first meet someone and you're kind of quickly exchanging texts, um, you know, do you want to bump into each other again? Can you buy me a shallot? You know, just the kind of banalities of you're just excited to, to engage with another person in a romantic way. The second movement is when you kind of fall into the lull of a, of, of, of a relationship and you're in that kind of honeymoon phase and you're, you know, you're divulging all the reasons that you love this person, reason number 537,000, whatever, that I love you because you'll follow me anywhere, even into the cold and the dark and the snow to buy a lottery ticket, um, just as I'm trying to get to bed. And then the last movement is... Um, when you've really when you've really settled in and you've reached the point in your romantic relationship where you've seen the other person in all of their seasons and you you know who they are um and you're showing a kind of renewed love for them so you know you're texting about things you know i'm sorry i was late and that you know you had to wait alone i love you i'm going to do better i'm going to try harder um but i'm excited about my future with you and so it's it's the 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 rise and fall or not the rise and fall i should say but the the kind of trajectory of of a relationship from those initial butterflies to the sense of i know this person i love this person and obviously now um we're only falling in love virtually um we don't have as much of that human connection as we used to so it's funny to have that kind of artifact of what it was like to date virtually pre-pandemic knowing that that's kind of been the only way that we've been able to um, to to create romantic relationships for over the last 18 months. So I'm very curious to hear how the pieces received and performed and felt um, in a in a post-pandemic world. That's really fascinating. And that you said that's going to be performed in 2022? May yes, in May 2022 by the wonderful uh, Young New Yorkers chorus. Fantastic. Just a quick correction, Rex's piece, Love Texts, will be performed by the Young New Yorkers Chorus in June 2022, not May. That is all. Vince, what about for Coral Chameleon? What's coming up for uh, for you guys? 
Yes, indeed. And I just want to shout out uh, for a moment to Young New Yorkers Chorus uh, and their conductor is Alex Canovis, who is the former assistant conductor of, of Choral Chameleon. Um, so there's a, we're certainly all of us very, very proud of Alex uh, and what he's done. Um, you know, all of us at Choral Chameleon. So just wanted to mention that. Um, Choral Chameleon is, you know, bouncing back from this pandemic in a big way. Um, we are releasing a new project this fall called Au Mouvement, uh, which is a, a study of motets and madrigals, both from yesteryear and present time, um, but with Tai Chi-like gestural movement. Um, so the choir is going to be filmed from above and from all sides doing you know these linear gestures sets of gestures that are being devised by the singers themselves um with within their sections as a response as a proprioceptive response to the shape ebb and flow of, of their lines and we'll be able to see them all and the differences and the places where they align um essentially it's a new way of using the human body to um to visualize what counterpoint looks like, what linear composition looks like. So we're excited about that. And in the spring, we're going to be giving what is, to my knowledge, uh, the world's first ever choral sound bath. Uh, so we're working with two certified sound healers, um, both who are members of Choral Chameleon. And our audience will join us uh, sitting on the floor, lying on mats, um, taking comfortable postures around uh, in a sort of circular sunburst formation. Um, and they will be surrounded by our 50, 55 singers on the outside perimeter uh, with the sound healers in the center using their instruments um, to create a very strong vibrational, healing, physical, palpable feeling um, using human voices and these instruments that is designed to just wash over the body and Hopefully that will be a healing experience for everybody. It will be Coral Chameleon's first live performance um, back uh, uh, since the since before the pandemic. And we wanted that experience to be a healing and meaningful one um, for the people who um, might feel anxious about coming back to live performance and are shell-shocked from everything that's happened. Um, you know, so how can how can what we do be functional, uh, used for a purpose, for a, a positive purpose in the world? So I'm excited about it. Our singers are excited about it. Uh, they all came back <laughs> um, after the pandemic, which is pretty incredible <laughs> to me. Um, and we're 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 filled to the brim with singers and and already rehearsing every week and singing to the rafters. Um, so we're deeply excited about it. That sounds so exciting! Wow. Um, Vince, where can we find you and Coral Chameleon online? You can visit Coral Chameleon at coralchameleon.com. Um, be sure to follow us on Instagram, uh, and also on Facebook if you prefer. Uh, and my own website, vincepeterson.com has a lot of further information about this and, and other projects, um, that I'm involved in. Um, so please do visit us there. And folks can pick up the album on CoralChameleon.com, correct? Yes, pick up the album on CoralChameleon.com. If you pick up the album on the Coral, 
Coral Chameleon website, um, there are special things that you get um, with the album by, by actually spending the 10 bucks and purchasing it on the Coral Chameleon website. You get um, deep wave files, which are 44 plus bit uh, lossless audio files downloadable, as well as the full liner notes um, and the libretto uh, for these pieces in PDF form and high res version of the artwork. Uh, that was designed for the cover of the album. So you can only get those on CoralChameleon.com, although the album will soon, not yet, but soon be available uh, wherever you get your music. And Rex, aside from the Whiff and Poof alumni website, where can <laughs> folks find you? Where can folks find you online? Yes, um, at, at my website, um, RexEisenberg.com um, is where you can find any news and updates about me and, and all of my work. Um, that's the best place to find me. Beautiful. And of course, as always, we'll put links to all of these things in our show notes so that our listeners can navigate quickly and easily to uh, find you both online and learn more about all the amazing projects and music that you're putting out into the world because we, we, uh, we want to we wanna ring the bells loud and clear because this is some really inspiring stuff. Thanks so much. Well, thanks so much, guys, for joining us and talking about the new album. Thank you. Uh, I have listened to it multiple times, and I encourage all of our listeners to go out and do the same. It is spectacular music. It is so well put together. Vince, you've done a great job. Rex, your music is inspiring. Um, it's just been really great to talk to both of you. And, um, yeah, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk to you again soon. Indeed. Thank you, guys. It's been a thrill to be here, Zane. Thank you. Love you all. What better way to wrap up this episode than with the final movement of Messiah's False and True? This is Movement 10, Man in His Own Star. Our chief want in life is somebody who shall inspire us to be what we could be. Stand with a leader that stands right. Stay with him while he is right, but part with him when he goes wrong. If you make yourself a sheep, the wolves will eat you. We can have faith in the future only if we have faith in ourselves.
If you want to hear the very end of this monumental work, please head over to choralchameleon.com and get yourself a copy of the entire Deus Ex Machina album. A link is in the show notes. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the In Unison Podcast. Be sure to check out episode extras and subscribe at inunisonpodcast.com. You can follow us on all social media at inunisonpod. And leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to let us know what you think. Text translated from the original Ancient Icelandic by Chorus Dolores, who still doesn't get TikTok. In Unison is produced and recorded by Mission Orange Studios. Our transcripts have been diligently edited by IOCSF member and friend of the pod, Fausto Daus. And our theme music is Mr. Puffy, written by Avi Bortnik, arranged by Paul Kim, and performed by the Danish vocal jazz ensemble Dynamic on their debut album, This Is Dynamic. Special thanks to Paul Kim for permission. Please be sure to check them out at www.dynamicjazz.dk.